Good morning. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you. Appreciate so much the opportunity to be with you and appreciate your dear pastor, Mark. It's been a joy in the last year or so to get to know him a little bit and uh, his heart for the Lord and for this church. And uh, I know the Lord is doing some good things here and uh, rejoice to be just a small part of that this morning. Uh, we are going to be looking to God's Word, and I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to page 32 in your pew Bibles, Genesis chapter 38, page 32 again in your pew Bibles. And before we uh, read this text, I just want to say that uh, this is one of those passages in the Bible that is very uh, sexually explicit in what it describes. So if you our parents with young children here today, you may want to uh, explain some of this to your children uh, later on when you go home, but this is indeed the Word of God. It is given to us in love for our good, and every word of it is true, and so we trust the Lord will use it for our profit today. So let's look to Genesis 38. Genesis 38, Genesis 38 we'll be reading the entire chapter. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she rose and went away, 
and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judas sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite back uh, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Moreover, uh, excuse me, and Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her, her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Our loving Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to hear the very words of the living God this morning. We are so unworthy, Lord, to have you speak to us. But in your amazing grace, because of what Jesus has done for us. We not only get to hear your voice, we get to understand what you are saying to us by the, the power and the illumination of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that this morning. And we pray now that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word and that you would make it a word that convicts our hearts of sin and leads us to Christ, the Savior of sinners. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Why on earth is Genesis 38 included in the Bible, you may ask? Well, one commentator refers to Genesis 38 as the most sordid chapter in the whole Bible. Uh, one church elder, after hearing a sermon on Genesis 38 one Sunday, was heard to say upon exiting the sanctuary, this passage is not fit to be read in public. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> and you should be glad, because the Bible never wastes words on us, does it? No, the Bible always is very intentional and purposeful with what it communicates to us, and this passage is no exception. And whenever the Bible records acts of depravity, such as the ones that are recorded in this text, there's always a wholesome purpose for it. And the author of this material is, is Moses, right? The author of Genesis is Moses. And notice how Moses handles this material, this horrible material. He handles it just about as delicately as you possibly could. I mean, he could have handled this in a much less delicate fashion, couldn't he? But he doesn't. 
Um, he, he, he's tactful in the way he presents this to us because he's got an agenda in inserting this story here in Genesis 38. It's not here by accident. Because once again, the covenant family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons, they find themselves in a moment of crisis. And the crisis involves two elements. First, spiritual compromise. And second, barrenness. And it all revolves around Judah. Judah is the one who at the end of Genesis is given the role of kingship in Israel by his father Jacob. And even though Joseph is the son of Jacob who, who gets the most press during the rest of Genesis, he's the most prominent son, Judah eventually emerges as the hero of the family and the one who takes on the role of leadership in the family. In fact, from Judah will come the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. From Judah will come the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Judah must be established. Judah must fail. But there are two major threats to Judah in this text. First, Judah does not have a rightful heir to continue his line. Barrenness, once again in Genesis, threatens the covenant family. And second, Judah is in a situation of grave spiritual compromise that threatens his very relationship with the living God. So the question of this chapter is, who will rescue Judah? And we'll see as the story moves on that rescue will come as it so often does in the Bible from the most unlikely place. So the first thing I'd like you to see this morning is the wickedness of Judah and his sons. The wickedness of Judah and his sons. Look at verses 1 and 2. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went in to her. That means that Judah took Shua, the Canaanite woman, to be his wife. I almost entitled this sermon, Judah Goes Down, because that's exactly what is happening here. The text says that Judah went down to stay with Hira. Judah starts out in Hebron with his brothers, which is at a higher elevation geographically. And then he goes down to Canaan's lowlands to be with Hira. For what purpose? Well, to live with and to marry into the people of Canaan. And Moses is using that, this idea of going down, as, as a literary device here to tell us that Judah is not just going down physically, he's going down spiritually. Moses is saying Judah's life is going downhill. He's getting too close, way too close to the Canaanites. He's getting too close to the fire. You know, you play with fire and what happens? You get burned. Judah's in danger here. Red flags should be popping up everywhere in our minds at the what happens to God's people when they get too close to the people of this world, particularly when they start marrying Canaanites, as Judah does here? Does the name uh, Esau come to mind? Uh, does the name Samson, perhaps, come 
to mind? Does the name Solomon come to mind? These were all men who married pagan, idolatrous women. And for each of them, the results were disastrous. It was no different for Judah, as we'll see here. And Moses is making a comment here in, in a very subtle way about the danger of becoming unequally yoked with unbelievers. Judah has been sucked into Canaanite culture and into Canaanite practices, as we'll see in the story. And that has happened precisely because Judah married a member of that culture. He's become closely aligned, as, as closely as you could imagine, with that very evil culture. And it brings him down. That should be a tremendous warning to us Today, 2 Corinthians 6.14 commands us, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That means if you're, if you're a believer and, and you're single, the only option for you is to marry another Christian. If you want to glorify God, that's what you must do. That is his will for you. Anything else is marrying outside of the will of God, and, and there will be consequences that you later regret. And you may have to wait until you're 38 years old to marry a, another believer, like I did. <laughs> Believe it or not, I was 38 years old, and at 38, after many years of waiting and singleness, the Lord brought my beautiful wife, Olgita, into my life, and I praise God for that, and it was not easy to wait, but I am so glad I waited and I married in the Lord. It has brought untold blessing to my life and to my family. I can only imagine how different my life would have been had I married a non-believer. And uh, I guess I'm not sure if any of you are single here. Perhaps there's someone here that is, but I, I like to tell single people uh, that uh, hopefully you won't have to wait that long, right, till 38. <laughs> hopefully you'll get married sooner, and I'm not wishing that on anyone, but the point is to say that it's far better, far better to wait and marry in God's will than to marry sooner outside of his will. Uh, young people here, and maybe I'm directing this to my own children here, um, they're still unmarried and looking forward to, to marriage. Uh, it needs to be your determined commitment, kids, <laughs> not to marry a Canaanite, a non-believer. Because if you are a believer and you marry someone who doesn't share your faith in Christ, you're putting yourself right where Judah put himself, and you're in for a rough ride. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled and known who have had a rough ride in their lives precisely because they ignored God's command to marry in the Lord. And Judah's put here before us, not, not as a role model, right? Uh, as a negative role model, I guess we could say, uh, by God to show us how not to live your life. To say, don't try this at home. Do not do what Judah does. He's, he's presented to us as a very broken man. He, he fails miserably by marrying a Canaanite. And he doesn't just fail in his marriage. He fails as a father as well. Uh, his sons are even worse than him. His first son, Er, the passage tells us, was wicked in the sight 
of the Lord. You know what the name Er means? It's the word evil spelled backwards, believe it or not. Uh, you know, we sometimes say about children, he's a little devil, right? Well, that was Er. <laughs> he, he was a wicked son in spite of being extremely young. Verses 1 to 11 of our text cover a period of about 20 years, so Er would have been only about 18 years old when the Lord put him to death. Imagine that. Wicked enough at 18 for the Lord to put him to death. We're not told what kind of wickedness he was guilty of, but it must have been severe to provoke such a response from the Lord at such a young age. His brother Onan was just as bad. Ur dies and he leaves behind his wife Tamar, who is now a widow. And the custom in that day, and you're going to, have to, you're going to have to track with me here, you're going to have to hang in with me because there's a lot of explaining that I need to do about what's happening here uh, from a cultural perspective. So I just beg your indulgence. Uh, please just try to, try to track with me if you're able. Um, the custom in that day, which was later prescribed by the Lord in Deuteronomy, was that if a brother died childless, one of his surviving brothers was required to marry his widow. Now, this was done for two very practical reasons. First, if a man dies and has no children, then there is no heir to continue his line. That means his name disappears from the face of the earth, which was a, a terrible disgrace in ancient culture. Second, it also means the dead man's share of the father's estate would be divided among the remaining living sons, leaving the dead man's family with nothing. So to prevent all of that from happening, a brother of the deceased man was to marry the widow of the deceased man. And the first son, the first son born of that union, would then be regarded as the heir of the deceased man. You tracking with this? <laughs> okay, a little hard to follow maybe, but hang in there. Um, then, then the heir, that heir of the deceased man, would bear the deceased man's name and he would receive the deceased man's share of the father's estate. Now, that was a big problem for Onan. And here's why. Onan knows that if his dead brother's wife Tamar has a son by him, his share of the estate is going to be dis diminished. He's going to get less of the estate for himself. If, if Onan has a son by Tamar, that son gets one-third of Judah's estate. His younger brother Shelah gets one-third of Judah's estate. And Onan gets a third of Judah's estate. But... If Onan has no son by Onan gets half of his father Judah's estate, right? From 33% to 50%. That's a much better deal. And Judah was a man of some means, right? So that was significant. A significantly greater portion that would be coming Onan's way. And he would only have to split that then with his younger brother Shelah. So when it comes time for Onan to fulfill his duty to Tamar by giving her the heir for her husband that she is seeking, what does he do? He spills his semen on the ground. And God is condemning this act, not because Onan is using a form of birth control, right? That, that's been taught in the past and it's a wrong, 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 totally wrong teaching. It has nothing to do with that at all. 
No, God is condemning it because it is a supremely selfish act. Onan uses Tamar time and time again merely to satisfy his own lusts. He, he could care less about the fact that she's a widow and she stands to lose everything if she doesn't have a son. He has, she, he has no love for his dead brother, no desire to honor his dead brother's name and raise up an heir for him. He's driven, this Onan, by pleasure and by greed. He thinks of only what's in it for him. He's just like so many young men and even... Unfortunately, many older men are today, isn't he? He wants all the privileges of having a woman and none of the responsibilities. Onan is a friends with benefits, we would say, kind of guy, right? And God detests that. God hates that. And so for his wickedness, God puts Onan to death as well. So Judah fails in marriage. He fails as a father by raising sons who are more wicked than he is and then finally he fails as a father-in-law after onan dies judah tells his daughter-in-law tamar to go live as a widow in her father's house until his only remaining son shelah grows up now that itself is wicked on judah's part why what should judah have done with tamar he should have cared for Tamar himself. Because, again, Judah is a man of some, some financial means. He could have easily financially supported her. And Tamar is a defenseless widow who, who has become a part of his family. And Judah could have easily invited Tamar to live with he and his wife Shua in their home. But instead, he shakes his responsibilities to her and he just passes her off, right? To her father, go live with your dad, right? Let him care for you. Let him pay for your needs. Let him tend to you. And as, as if that's not bad enough, he gives Tamar the impression that as soon as his youngest boy, Shelah, is old enough, he'll give Shelah to her in marriage in order to raise up an heir for her dead husband. <laughs> we know Right from reading the story, that uh, Judah's a liar, isn't he? He has absolutely no intention of giving Shelah to Tamar because the text tells us that Judah thinks that if he gives Shelah to Tamar, Shelah will die, just like his brothers, Aaron Onan. Can you see the, the, the utter spiritual blindness of Judah here at this point in his life? He thinks Tamar is like jinxed, right? Or cursed, right? Like, like someone put a spell on her, right? And, and she's got bad voodoo, right? She's got bad vibes coming out of her. And, and you need to stay as far away as you can from her because anyone get close, that gets close to her is going to fall under her curse. <laughs> and he never even suspects that his wicked sons are the problem, not Tamar. His own sons, his own wicked sons, have brought all of this death about. Judah is a man here, he, he just lost his moral compass completely. He has no, he has zero spiritual discernment. And by the end of verse 7, he's revealed not only to be a wicked man, but an utter fool. Like Lot in Sodom, Judah becomes a joke. 
And unless he's rescued, he will walk away from the pages of the Bible. Utter spiritual disaster. His life will fade into insignificance, just like the pagans around him who don't know God. So who will rescue Judah from his disastrous life? Well, enter Tamar. We've seen the wickedness of Judah and his sons. But now we see the righteousness of Tamar. You know what's beautiful about this story? It goes against everything we normally think. Right? Normally we, don't th- we think that if God is at work in people's lives, everything is beginning to go well. Right? Everything's starting to be- begin to be on the upswing. But here God is at work in this family and it's an absolute mess. So be encouraged you think your family is messed up, there's at least one family in the Bible that's more messed up than yours. And if God can work in that family, there's hope for any family, including yours. And the Lord rescues Judah and his family here through the most unlikely source, a Canaanite widow named Tamar. And here's how this plays out. Judah's Canaanite wife, Shua, Dies And shortly thereafter, Judah goes up to Timnah. It's sheep shearing time. That was a festival occasion. Uh, something like Mardi Gras, right? Or, or Carnival in Latin America. Uh, it, it's a time for partying. It's a time for getting drunk. It's a time for engaging in sexual immorality. And Judah, boy, he's ready to party hardy, right? And, and Tamar hears Judah is on his way to the party. And so she disguises herself as a prostitute to try and snare Judah. Now, Tamar's action reveals two things. First, Tamar has figured Judah out, right? She knows enough about his character to know that Judah wouldn't have any problem sleeping with a prostitute, right? That's the kind of man he is. He is a lustful fornicator. And second, she knows that Judah had lied to her about her youngest son, Shelah. Shelah was now of marrying age, but he had not been given to take in marriage. So she's now stuck being a widow. She's unable to marry because technically she's engaged to Shelah. So she seduces Judah and becomes pregnant by him. Now, normally speaking, right, we would condemn that type of behavior in the strongest way terms on the part of Tamar. But it would seem here that the scriptures actually commend it. Do you know why? Because it seems Tamar's primary is raising up an heir for her dead husband. Tamar has not married another Canaanite man, and she's waited and waited and waited for her brother-in-law and her brothers-in-law actually to help her raise an heir. And she is bound and determined that her dead husband will have an heir by hook or by crook. And you see she's, ex- she's displaying extreme loyalty to her, her dead husband heir, whatever the cost. She wants heir's name to be preserved and wants his line to continue. That was an honorable thing to desire. And Tamar seems to be the only member of this family who truly cares about what a member of the covenant family should care about. And she seems to be the only member of this family who acts like a member of the covenant family should 
act. She acts righteously. Right? Someone has said that unrighteousness is disadvantaging, disadvantaging someone else in order to advantage yourself. Right? That's unrighteousness. But righteousness is the opposite. Righteousness is disadvantaging yourself in order to advantage someone else. And that's exactly what Tamar is doing here. She puts herself at extreme disadvantage, right? She throws her reputation clean out the window and she becomes a prostitute. And by doing so, she even risks her very life because Judah wants to kill her when he finds out she's guilty of prostitution. She disadvantages herself to the extreme. Why? For the sake of her dead husband and for the benefit of the covenant family. And even Judah has to admit this. After he finds out that it was Tamar that he slept with and not a prostitute, he says what in verse 26? She is more righteous than I. Literally in Hebrew, Judah says, she is righteous, not I. She is righteous, not I. You see, Tamar is the hero of the story because she risks her very life to save her family. And her righteous act leads to the transformation of Judah. This becomes a turning point, believe it or not, in Judah's life. One Bible scholar says this marks the actual conversion experience of Judah. Right? Because he finally owns up to his sin. He's been sinning grievously against the Lord up until now. And now for the first time, Judah acknowledges his sin. And notice he doesn't just acknowledge it, he repents of it. Verse 26 tells us that Judah did not sleep with Tamar again. He could have easily kept sleeping with her and, and using her as his son Onan had done. But he doesn't. Why? Because the Lord seems to be working repentance in his heart. And Judah can't live as he lived before. He had been a moral failure for many, many years, but he never really admitted it up until now. He never really owned it, but now he does. He said, it's me, it's me. I'm the sinner. She is righteous, not I. You know what's so encouraging about that? Oh, this is, this is such a blessed word for us to consider. It shows that God can overrule the sinful and the evil things we do in our lives and turn them for our good. Have you seen God do that in your life? I've seen the Lord do that in my life on many occasions. Things that I've intended for evil, as, as Joseph says about his brothers at the end of Genesis. God works for our good. That's what he's doing with Judah here. He has no godly intent in his actions toward Tamar, and yet God uses his very sin to bring him to repentance. Amazing, right? Amazing how great our God is, that he is more powerful than our sin. He, he's, able to, he's able to use sin for his own end, to accomplish his own purposes. That nothing is greater than our sovereign Lord. Not even the rebellion and the sinfulness of people. It all serves to accomplish his plan and his purpose. Praise the Lord. And sometimes we need to come to the place in our lives where we're in the place of the prodigal son, right? Where we hit rock bottom. 
so that when we're finally eating with the pigs and the Lord smacks us upside the head with a two by four, we finally get it, right? Do you need that? Sometimes I need the Lord to smack me with a two by four before I get it, right? That I need to repent because I'm so blind like Judah is to my own sin. I'm so hard hearted. I'm so stubborn spiritually that the Lord has to put us in a place of great need and we're finally eating with the pigs. We wake up and we repent. And this apparently is what happens to Judah. He hits rock bottom and he repents. She is righteous, not I. And with that simple, honest admission of sin, Judah becomes a changed man. He leaves his life of sin behind. It reminds me of the story of Augustine, the early church father. Uh, before he came to know Christ, he had lived, lived a very wicked and immoral life. But after coming to Christ, one day he was walking down a street and he happened to pass by the home of a former lover. And she saw Augustine pass by. And she rushed out of the house and she said, Augustine, it is I. To which Augustine responded, yes, but it is no longer I. <laughs> you see, if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. The fornicators stop being fornicators. The adulterers stop being adulterers. That is the fruit of genuine repentance. And we see it in Judah's life in response to the righteous sacrificial action of Tamar. Which brings us to our final point, And that is in verses 21 to 30. The amazing grace of God. The amazing grace of God. Tamar gives birth to twin boys out of this incestuous relationship with Judah. Their names are Perez and Zerah. I preach in Spanish at times. And I like to say that uh, Perez or Perez is the first Latino in the Bible, but that's not really true. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, here we see the grace the Lord shows to repentant sinners like Judah. Remember, Judah had lost two sons, right, because of their wickedness. And now the Lord restores two sons to him, exactly two. And it's perhaps the Lord's way of communicating to Judah that his sins have been forgiven. And a new day is dawning in his life. And as we move forward in Genesis, we see that Judah indeed becomes a changed man. He becomes a real spiritual leader to his family, showing that no matter how messed up your life is, if, if you had but turned to the Lord in repentance, the Lord can give you a new beginning. He can take the made out of your life and make it something beautiful. And hasn't he done that in some measure, perhaps in great measure? for all of us on different levels. The Lord is not gracious to Judah. He gives him the heirs that he needs. The Lord is gracious to Tamar as well. She has <laughs> suffered so much and waited so long to have a son, and God gives her two sons instead of one. How good the Lord is, amen? How sweet is his mercy. And this is also the Lord's way of confirming the righteous act of Tamar. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, we know it from 
what other parts of the Bible tell us. Many years later, in Ruth chapter 4, the elders of Israel are pronouncing a blessing on Boaz, who has taken Ruth to be his wife. And listen to the blessing they pronounce on Boaz. Hear this sweet word from the Lord. They bless Boaz, these, these precious elders of Israel. They bless him and they say this to him, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this woman Ruth. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. You talk about grace. That verse tells us that Judah's son Perez apparently became a very godly man in Israel. Out of this incestuous relationship emerged a man of God. And Perez also becomes Judah's heir. The one who carries the line of Judah forward. Perez becomes the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah. And as a result, Tamar becomes one of only four women in the entire Bible. Mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, in Matthew chapter 1. So out of this horrible mess comes the righteousness of Tamar, a righteousness that covers a multitude of sin. And all this blessing flows. And so what do we find here in this quote-unquote, most sordid chapter in the Bible, we find that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. We find Jesus Christ himself descending from this disgusting incest to cover the whole multitude of our sins. But unlike Tamar, Jesus is the, the greater and the better Tamar, right? Jesus didn't just risk his life to cover a multitude of sins. Jesus, the righteous one, gave his life to cover the entire multitude of sins. His righteousness undoes all of our unrighteousness. Praise God. You know, when you think about Jesus' title, he's called in Scripture the Lion from the tribe of Judah. When you think about it, it's really a very humble title, isn't it? because it identifies Jesus with one of the chief of sinners in the Bible. You know, we, we think, yeah, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Yeah, that's awesome, right? He's from the mighty tribe of Judah. <laughs> and we think it's a title of great honor, right? But then we realize who Judah was. And when we realize that, we realize Jesus didn't at all come from proud. He came from a miserable wretch of a man so he could undo all that wretched man had ever done wrong and all we have ever done wrong to show us the richness of his superabounding grace. That's the gospel. It's the story of how by the sacrifice of one man, the many will be made what? Righteous. Righteous. Amen. Yes, even the wretched Judah was made righteous by Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that, go to Revelation chapter 21, 
where we're given a vision of the holy city, a vision of heaven. And in verse 12, it says, on the gates of that city were written the names of who? Of the 12 tribes of Israel. You know what that means? It means that the name of Judah is written on the very gates of heaven. Of all people, the holy city bears Judah's name. This lustful fornicator, guilty of incest, has his name written large in heaven. Praise God. And why? Because Jesus is the friend and the savior of sinners. One Bible commentator says, not only does our master eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, but the 12 gates of heaven are named for them to encourage the worst of sinners to come to him. That's amazing grace. It saved a wretch like Judah, and it can save you or anyone else too. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we praise you for the Lord. Lord, we don't sin, but we praise you that your grace, Lord Jesus, was greater than all his sin. And if you can save and transform him, you can save and transform anyone. And we praise you that you even take what we mean for evil and use it for our good. So do this, we pray, and continue to do it in our lives. Overrule our sin, we pray, in order to use even sin to save and sanctify us. We pray for the glory of your great name. Amen.